0: Well, thank you so much for coming on such a sunny day. I thought I wouldn't get any audience at all on such a wonderful uh, sunny day. And um, But this is a, a wonderful opportunity for you and for me because this book actually isn't out yet. Um, uh, so it's kind of exciting that you know, you're getting a little uh, advanced glimpse of uh, what I've been up to for the last uh, three years in writing this book. Um, the catalyst for this book was partly... Um, the fact that I took over this this new job from Richard Dawkins, um, the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, and uh, the title. Uh always makes me laugh somehow because, uh, you know, there's a kind of expectation with this professorship that um, maybe I know the whole of science um, and that, you know, I'm, I'm here to explain it to the public. Um, um, and uh, actually, I, I, quite a few journalists seem to have this impression as well because when I first got this job, um, I would get these phone calls from people. Um, so I remember um, a journalist phoning me up. Uh, the Nobel Prizes for Medicine had just been announced and um, this journalist phoned me up uh, from one of the broadsheets. So, yes, Nobel Prize for Medicine has just been announced uh, for, for the discovery of telomeres. Could you tell me what a telomere is? Um, now, biology has never been my strong point, um, so I was like, oh "My God, I've never even heard of a telomere." So, uh, so I'm. I'm Really embarrassed to admit, I mean, uh, you can look me up on Wikipedia, but you can look a lot of things up on Wikipedia, actually. Um, so I quickly went online, uh, uh, pulled up telomeres, read quickly through what a telomere was, and then uh, uh, confidently told this journalist that they're the pieces of, at the end of the DNA, which control um, uh, how long a piece of DNA will last. And, uh, uh, um, and and so I realized this is kind of crazy. I, there's no way I can be expected um, uh, to, to know it all. Um, Uh, But actually, it began to make me think, um, is it possible uh, at any point in history that scientists, science, might know it all? Could we answer everything? Could we know everything? Um, And so that was partly the sort of inspiration for this uh, journey, was um, uh, to see whether there are any problems in science that, by their very nature, um, we will never be able to solve. Um, so, actually, the books are divided up into seven edges of knowledge, um, which kind of took me on this journey um, outside of my own area of mathematics into different regions. And I'm going to take you a few, a few, through a few of these stories. Um, but I think that kind of uh, desire to know is, is absolutely basic. And it is extraordinary how much we have discovered, or the news new stories coming out each week. I mean, I think... Since I took over this job, the sort of things we discovered, we managed to land a kind of spaceship the size of a washing machine, machine on the side of a comet, absolutely extraordinary. Um, we've got robots that we've programmed to develop their own language that we as humans can't understand. We have to interact with the robots to be able to understand that language. Um, We've uh, sequenced the DNA of a 50,000-year-old cave girl and repaired the pancreas using stem cells of a diabetic patient. I mean, this catalogue of things that we've achieved and the things we've discovered is extraordinary. And I think that basic desire to know is almost as basic as the desire to reproduce. And here's Aristotle, the beginning of metaphysics. He says, everyone by nature desires to know. In fact, I did a little research, and the word to know... Um, is actually one of only about a hundred which have a universal translation across all languages. Not even the word eat is necessarily clearly translatable into each language. So an incredibly basic desire. Um, But it's always dangerous at any point in history to declare you will never know something. And I've kept in mind on my journey throughout the last three years, trying to find out those things that we cannot know, a few stories. One in particular is this guy, Auguste Comte who in the middle of the 19th century declared, we shall never be able to study by any method the chemical composition of stars. Now at the time, that seemed completely fair. I mean, how on earth are we ever going to visit a star to dig a bit out and actually find out what it's made of? But of course, uh, you know, a few decades later, we knew exactly what stars are made out of. Why? Because we don't necessarily have to go and visit the star. The star is visiting us every night. The light coming from the star is uh, telling us what the star is made of. Um, so uh, it's always dangerous, and I'm sort of very clear that, you know, I'm not sure whether I've got any definitive answers here about things that you can absolutely say you can't know. Um, but, uh, but that was the journey, to try and understand whether maybe you can articulate that there are things that you will never know. Um, Of course, the the desire to know about the unknowable isn't restricted to science. I mean, there's a very famous example of a politician who uh, got into quite a scrambled mess trying to describe um, uh, his theory of knowledge. Um, Here he goes, Donald Rumsfeld, trying to explain about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and whether they were there or not, um, declared, There are known knowns. There are things that we know that we know. We also know there are known unknowns, that is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. Uh, but there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. <laughs> uh, now, actually, uh, Donald Rumsfeld got awarded the uh, foot-in-mouth ma- um, uh, award by the Plain English-Speaking Society for this statement, but I actually think it's very unfair, because I think this is a wonderful statement about states of knowledge. Um, the, the unknown unknowns. Those are those black swan events. I can't tell you about the unknown unknowns, else they'd be known. Um, I'm going to try and tell you about the known unknowns, whether we can know what those unknowns are. There's another category here that I think he missed, though, which I think is very interesting when it comes to a politician, uh, which is, of course, the unknown known. Which Slavoj Žižek actually pointed out was, you know, those are those Freudian things that um, you you actually know, but you don't deny that you know them. And they sort of, but they come out and somehow, um, and I think probably those are the most relevant to a a politician as the um, unknown knowns. Um, um, So uh, that was, uh, uh, um, so this journey to try and find the unknown unknown, unknowns, the known unknowns, um, I wanted to try and apply my mathematical mind to see whether I could articulate. Uh, whether there were any questions in the science. Another inspiration for this book actually came from the person that I took over uh, this job as a Simone Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, because my predecessor was Richard Dawkins. Um, now, you, of course, know that Richard spent a lot of time not just talking about biology and evolution, but also about God. Um, the, uh, um, his God Delusion book was uh, probably one of his most popular books. So, so I kind of braced myself... Um, when I took over this job for getting a lot of questions, not about telomeres, um, but about what my beliefs in, uh, about religion were and God's were. Um, now, I was quite keen to just uh, create a sort of distance between me and Richard. We do very different things scientifically. Um, and so I, I kind of prepared this response to journalists who would phone up and say, and, and yeah, what, uh, what are your religious beliefs? Um, and I would tell them I'm a deeply religious man. Um, my religion happens to be the arsenal. Um, I have uh, faith every year, faith every year, and it's been tested once again that next season we will win the Premiership. Um, uh, I go to my temple every Saturday or Sunday. This, this weekend it'll be Sunday. Um, I sing songs to my idols and I worship them. Um, uh, and so I hoped that this would kind of bat away these questions about religion. But some of these journalists were very persistent. Um, So I remember one instance on, uh, uh, it was a Sunday morning on BBC Northern Ireland Radio. It was a a programme about philosophy and religion. And I said, I'm quite happy to talk about philosophy and science and things like that, but I really don't want to talk about religion. Um, Of course, as soon as we got on air, uh, that went out the window and he was like... So Marcus, do you believe in God? Uh, Uh, He wasn't from India, sorry. Um, uh, uh, I I will stop doing that. Um, uh, uh, So so he just kept on pressing me, kept on pressing me, and it became quite an aggressive interview uh, to the point that um, uh, as a mathematician, you see, if you're asking me whether something exists, actually we spend a lot of time uh, at the Math Institute here proving things exist, maybe without being able to know what they look like, but we can prove that they exist, or often we prove that things don't exist. Andrew Wiles, who this building is named after, proved that there aren't solutions to Fermat's occasions. He, he had a way to prove these things do not exist. So I said, okay, I'm quite happy to engage in this if you give me a definition that I can start to engage my mathematical mind with. So he said, ah, well, uh, God, uh, that's something which transcends human understanding. Uh, oh, you've just played me out of the game. I mean, how can I engage with that? So it just was. It seemed to me uh, just. And so I got brave. I said that that. Well, how can we stop the debate with that? But actually, that definition sort of stuck in my mind as quite an intriguing one. So as the years went on, and I sort of decided to engage a little bit more, perhaps um, with this kind of the, the bridge uh, between science and religion. I began to think about that as a definition. What, what about the definition of God being the things that uh, we cannot understand, the things that we cannot know, the things which transcend us? Um, so can I apply my scientific mind to what that God would be like? And I talked to a philosopher in my college, in New College, um, Stephen Mulhall, uh, just before I was doing an event with a chief rabbi, actually, about he's got a wonderful book called um, Science and Religion, The Great Partnership. Um, and he referred me to this guy, Herbert McCabe, who was a theologian here in Oxford, um, who actually a Marxist theologian. Get that. You know, that's quite cool. To, uh, um, so, but he had, uh, he's got quite a lot of crazy articles about uh, Christian kind of traditions and things, but he had this one article which um, uh, Stephen Mulhall referred me to, and in there he says, to assert the existence of God is to claim that there is an unanswered question about the universe. Um, so I thought that's quite an interesting definition, and I sort of, through the book, uh, I run with sort of just exploring a little bit about what sort of idea that is as a god. Um, Herbert McCabe says, you know, religion basically committed iconoclasm by giving this very abstract high concept too many properties it just didn't have. And of course, as kids, that's what we get introduced to, all the silly things, um, and then we sort of d- discard that. Um, so I, I sort of wanted to have a, perhaps a, a more nuanced engagement with this question by defining something ob- abstract like this. Now, there is this term, the God of the gaps, which you may have heard of, but um, that's actually used by religious people as a, sort of, um, as a kind of negative thing. They, they, A lot of religious people will say, no, you're meant to know God. You're meant to attempt to know God. So actually, the God of the gaps is, is something that they sort of use as, uh, as a kind of negative statement. But I want to try and reclaim that maybe and just explore through this book and, and, and a little bit with you now uh, as we go through these attempts to find out what is it that could transcend our uh, understanding um, uh, forever. Um, So as I said, the the book is divided up into these seven edges of knowledge, seven areas that I've sort of explored um, uh, which go from trying to understand the nature of the universe, is it infinite, whether we can infinitely divide matter, um, uh, what's going on inside our brain. Um, So I'm going to take you on a little tour of a few of these to give you a sort of feel for what might be unknowable and, and, and whether we can know that sort of thing. I think one of the ultimate symbols of the unknowable is, in fact, um, the dice. You know, a dice would not make a fun game um, if you could actually predict what this was going to do next. Um, So the first edge that I explored um, is about the nature of the future. Can we predict the future? Um, And in fact, mathematics at its heart is is very much trying to do that. Um, I I call a mathematician a pattern searcher. What we do is look at patterns in the past and try and use those to extrapolate to understand patterns into the future. Um, So how powerful is my language of mathematics in being able to predict what is going to happen next? Um, So actually, each of the edges is accompanied by an object which kind of sparks my journey um, into the unknown. So the object um, uh, for this particular edge Uh, is the casino dice and this is in fact a, a casino dice that I picked up when I was in Vegas and it's it's uh, you know I was trying to use my maths to make a lot of money and uh, I've lost so much money but they let me keep the dice <laughs> that's nice of them. Um, uh, 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 now it is a thing. It's a thing of beauty. I mean you can come and look at it afterwards. It's it's uh, because it has to be incredibly fair. It's it's really a, a pretty much perfect cube. The edges are, are just beautifully sharp and and the uh, the paint's been sort of uh, has the same density as the acetate. It's it's really. Uh, I mean it is a thing of beauty. Yet it also is something that I absolutely hate. Because I cannot, you know, my desire to do mathematics was was partly about wanting to know with 100% certainty that something was true. Um, And, you know, here was this thing which, you know, when I roll it, I just don't know what, I got a one that time. you know, And and I might be able to, I've got the equations for this thing, but, you know, how can I tell what it's going to do next? Um, So that was a kind of challenge. Actually, maybe if I work hard enough, I could know what this was going to do. And I guess the hero on my journey to try and use mathematics to be able to predict the future um, is Isaac Newton, because Isaac Newton came up with the laws of motion, the physical laws of motion, uh, the idea of calculus. He showed us how the universe can be controlled. You know, we can predict when an eclipse is gonna happen. We were able to predict that Mercury was gonna go across the the sun just recently. Um, And that's all thanks to this revolution that Newton started, which kind of revealed that the universe may be a kind of clockwork universe controlled by these equations. If you know how things are set up, you run the equations, you can know what's gonna happen into the future. Well, if Newton is my hero, my nemesis in this whole desire to know the future is this guy here, Henri Poincaré, a French mathematician um, who at the beginning of the 20th century said, yeah, well, the universe may be controlled by equations. It may be that um, if you know the absolute startup of any system, you run the equations, you'll know exactly what's gonna happen in the future. But he said, unfortunately, you're never going to have that complete knowledge of how a system is set up, because there's always a little bit of error. If you're measuring how um, the solar system is set up, um, then, you know, how can you be sure that uh, you've got the 50th decimal place right? And what Poincare showed is that just a very small change in maybe the 50th decimal place may cause a dramatically different outcome. Um, Now, one of my favorite examples of uh, chaos in motion, and this is um, an illustration that even something very simple can have a very difficult uh, future to try and predict. So um, this is a pendulum. Now a pendulum is generally something so simple and predictable we use it to keep track of time. But this is a slightly different pendulum. So this is uh, what I call a double pendulum. Um, so it's, a, it's jointed, so it's a little bit like a leg. So it's just two metal pieces here. Um, so the, you know, it's a very simple geometric description and the equations um, are equally quite simple. Um, but being able to predict uh, the behavior of this thing is almost impossible. So let's set this off. And yeah, You see, why are you laughing? Why? Because it's so hilariously funny that you can't predict it. You says like, uh, I mean, it's very interesting. It just always makes me laugh when. I, and, and look, I'm going to try and. Re- I've, I had a little notch there, so I to... The point is, I'm going to try and repeat that behaviour. I'm going to try and start it off in exactly the same starting position. So that's, um, wow! That, oh, wow! Look, it's com- completely different behaviour that time. And I think I've tightened it a little bit too fast because it's um. Let's do it a little uh, a big one here. So um, that's. This is my favorite desktop toy. I can play with this for absolutely hours. So, um, uh, but it sort of illustrates that even very simple systems you make a very small change to the conditions and it can go in a completely different direction. And this is the signature of something called called chaos. Another of my favorite desktop toys um, is this one here. I use this to make all my decisions about life. Um, uh, So you can see it has uh, different options. Ask a friend, try again, no way, definitely, maybe, yes. And what you do is, um, uh, so uh, here's a little, uh, I'll show you the little video of this. Um, So this is uh, one set up in a lab. Um, You start this thing off and try to predict this. So I'm gonna ask it, Should I go? to have a beer in the pub after this lecture? Let's see, oh gosh, it's kind of... Oh, definitely. Oh, great, so that's good. Um, (laughs) Excellent, yeah. I think I've put a very... It always says definitely when I ask it about the beer. It's really great. um, Thanks, yeah. Um, So, but you can see from this that it, you know, just if I run that again, trying to see, you know, beforehand which magnet that's going to end up in. So there are three magnets here and the thing is just being, you know, pulled around. It's a bit like an asteroid flying around three planets and which planet is it going to hit Well, eventually goes for this one here. And here's uh, um, uh, three computer simulations I did where I actually just changed something like the sixth decimal place of the coordinate where the um, pendulum started. And you can see, um, so I've I've colored the pendulum, uh, the magnets up now. So I've got blue magnet, a yellow magnet, and a red magnet. And just a very small change caused a completely different behavior, a different path, different planet that the asteroid hit. Um, And here is a computer simulation which tells you, uh, helps you to predict, maybe, where the pendulum is going to end up. Um, So there are some regions which are very predictable. So if you're close to the yellow magnet, so the idea is if you start the pendulum off um, uh, over a particular point, you look at the colour under that point and that will tell you where the pendulum is going to end up. Um, so if I start near a yellow magnet, um, then the thing just wobbles about and goes back to the yellow magnet. So, um, uh, so, but there are other regions which are a little bit further away. So here's a, a very large swathe of red. You start there, it'll swing out, but will then an, end up at the red magnet. So small changes are not going to be, uh, cause any dramatic difference in where the magnet will end up. But I was starting that magnet in the top left-hand corner. And in this region, you have what's called a fractal. So this is a shape which has infinite complexity. So as I zoom in on it, it never simplifies. It never becomes a single colour. So it means that however uh, accurately I try and measure this thing, just a few more decimal places can kick it quite easily from going from the yellow to the red magnet. So this is saying that uh, unless I have complete... Description of how the universe is set up. I cannot know the future in this region Just a small change in a decimal place will cause a completely different outcome to happen Um, Now I also uh, was accompanied on my journey into these edges of knowledge um, by uh, a few experts Uh, I I chose a lot of areas. I'm not expert at all. It's very much was a learning curve for me some of this Um, and uh, In this chapter about chaos. I I actually chose a a colleague of ours here in Oxford, uh, this is Bob May. Uh, it's Lord May, as he's now. Um, and he actually discovered, I mean, this, this idea of chaos theory um, affects so much of what we're trying to predict about the future. The reason that I wasn't sure whether it was going to be a monsoon out there I mean yesterday we had monsoons kind of weather hitting us um, uh, uh, you know being able to predict the weather five days in advance is impossible because just a very small change in some of those measurements of the wind speed temperature can cause within five days things to go dramatically different. Uh, the planets too are very sensitive but on a fortunately on a longer scale than five days I mean, we're talking sort of five billion years a very small change can actually cause uh, the solar system to do something completely different. But uh, Bob May has discovered that not only in these kind of uh, physical systems but also in biology as well Um, he's a mathematical biologist he discovered that um, trying to keep track of population dynamics is also controlled by chaotic equations Um, so just a very small change, you put in one extra animal and the dynamics can be completely different, you can have the whole system collapsing uh, whilst without that animal you can have a very healthy uh, uh, pack of animals the next year um, and in fact, now he's working, um, he's a cross-party member in the House of Lords, um, and he spends a lot of time actually working on the banking crisis and trying to understand whether that was an example of a chaotic uh, behaviour. Um, and sure enough, you know, people in economics, there are regions like those yellow regions where things are very predictable, and then it can go into very strange, unpredictable regions. And he said this to me whilst we were talking. I went to him and had lunch with him at the House of Lords. And he's, he said, not only in research, but in the everyday world of politics and economics. It would be better off if more people realized that simple systems do not necessarily possess simple dynamic properties. Uh, and, uh, and I asked him, you know, how are you getting on in trying to persuade your fellow uh, kind of politicians about the importance of knowing about chaos theory? And he said, Marcus, there are just egos here. Nobody's interested in what I said. It's just they're all interested in their careers. So he was very down on that. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think that is one of the important things when you're trying to do, do policy is knowing when you can be confident about what's going to happen next. I'm not saying that mathematics is completely useless. We've been able to land that spaceship on the side of a comet because of Newton's equations. Um, But it's also important to know when you're in those regions, maybe in the top left-hand corner of that fractally picture, where now you can say you can't know. So it's almost as important to know when you can't know as to know when you can know, because then you can be conservative and hunker down and and kind of avoid um, uh, uh, the the mess that might emerge. Um, So I came back to my dice and I was very interested, okay, well, what about this? Is this just chaotic? Um, Or if I knew this to a certain amount of detail, could I actually predict what it was gonna do next? I have the um, laws of motion which control how this falls, how it hits the table, And I uh, actually discovered a recent piece of research done by four Hungarians which revealed that actually this is more predictable than I thought it was going to be. Um, So what they've done is to, I mean, I had that picture with the three magnets, which I had three colors for. Um, So now we've got six sides, um, and so we've got six colors to keep track of. So we can draw a picture of how we start off a dice and what, uh, uh, what that effect will have on the outcome, which colored face will it land on. And it turns out that if the table that you're throwing it on um, uh, uh, that th- th- dissipates quite a lot of energy, so it's sort of when it falls, the energy ca- kind of gets sucked out of it, so like a carpet, for example, um, then actually the behavior of this is described by the picture in the top left-hand corner. Um, So actually, if the energy is being dissipated, so if I throw this on the the floor here, it doesn't bounce very much. And actually, um, it turns out that we don't have this fractal quality. There's swathes of yellow, swathes of green, swathes of blue. And so a small change is not going to change where that dice is going to land up. So here's a tip. Do you want to know which way it's going to land? What you need to look at is the bottom number, because it's more likely to land when you throw it like that on the bottom number. So in fact I had a 1 on the bottom and it came up 1 there so there you are quid's <laughs> in uh, um, so but uh, if you think about it so at, at the craps table in the uh, you know it's it's um, it, You know, you've got a sort of felt on there. It's dissipating some sort of energy. But here, this is very hard, this table. So as you move through here, the rigidity of the table is increasing, and so it's losing less energy as you go through. So let's try and do that again, see whether... um, So down in here, we get a very fractal region. So now a very small change. Um, So... Yeah, so it landed a four, um, whilst I had it, the one on the bottom at uh, that time. So um, so it depends on the circumstances, but uh, there are regions where, this, where I can know what this dice is going to do next. And actually, that's kind of your uh, one thought is, you know, I've sort of brought up on, yeah, the universe is controlled by equations, and if you know the complete setup, you should be able to know exactly what's going to happen next. Of course, we may not know the complete setup. That's what chaos theory is saying. A small change means that you might lose a lot of uh, knowledge about what's happening next. But in fact, there's part of science which says, look, even if you know the complete setup of the universe, there are still certain certain circumstances where there's no way you're going to know what's going to happen next. And one of them is in the chapter that I explored um, uh, next uh, was um, uh, trying to predict the behavior of a pot of uranium. So it's amazing what you can buy on the internet. Um, <laughs> uh, so this, this pot of uranium, I ordered it over the internet um, and, and uh, I'm, I'm assured it's, um, oh, gosh. Um, um, uh, uh, I'm assured that it's completely safe. Um, uh, but they, I, the instructions say don't eat it. Um, uh, but um, this actually uh, at, at its heart um, is uh, the question of when this is going to radiate at the side it says um, that it has, uh, it's going to emit 984 counts of radiation so if you have a Geiger counter you get 984 counts um, per minute um, so it's got some sort of estimate of what it's going to do but that's only an approximate estimate so it, it says you know over a minute on average that's what you'll get what it can't tell me is when it's going to emit an alpha particle, for example. Um, And the extraordinary thing is the current state of physics says that this is just uh, how the universe is, that there is no mechanism, nothing that we can do which is going to tell us when this uranium is going to emit its next particle particle. That this, we say, is random, but that's actually just an expression of our lack of knowledge of the startup. This seems to be something which the physics says is genuinely random. And actually, the person sort of at the heart of trying to explain what this uh, bit of uranium is doing, why it's emitting at particular points, um, uh, is uh, Heisenberg. This is a picture of Heisenberg. I, I'm trying to embrace and love Heisenberg, but I, he's another person I don't really like. Um, LAUGHTER uh, and this equation, so you've probably heard of this thing, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle almost embeds the idea that there are things you cannot know that you will never be able to know about a physical system. And its expression, it's not a kind of vague, wishy-washy uh, thing about cats and Schrodinger and things like that. It's actually a very explicit mathematical formula and follows out of the mathematics. Um, so these two terms here, delta x and delta p, um, this is about uh, position and momentum. Um, so, basically, uh, these two things are, are kind of paired up. And the more knowledge you get about the position of something, the less you know about the potential momentum. Momentum, I remember, is, is how something is travelling. Uh, it, it involves the speed of the thing. Um, and, in fact, one my, this is why I've got to tell you one of my favourite jokes. So, this is uh, Heisenberg is storming down the autobahn in Germany, and, uh, and the police pull him over, and, and they get him out of the car, and they say, um, sir, do you know how fast you were going? No, but I know exactly where I was. Um, uh, Now, that's good. A good sign that you're all laughing because um, uh, if anyone who didn't laugh, and I now have to explain the joke a little bit, is that um, there's a trade-off here, and this is what this equation says. The more I know about the um, position of something, that's the delta x is controlling what the error is. So the more I know about it and the smaller the error, in order to make this equation true, the momentum has to increase. The in uncertainty, sorry, in the momentum has to increase. The, the, the knowledge I have of the momentum, I, get, I lose knowledge about it. And actually, it's perfectly summed up in some of these lovely experiments. Now, you, you might have experienced this thing or heard about this thing called the double-slit experiment, where you send an electron through and it can't, doesn't really decide. It seems to go through both slits at the same time. And actually, this thing about uncertainty is even revealed with just one single slit, So all I'm going to do is to take my uranium off in a very far distance, so that's going to be my particle gun. I'm going to have, say, an alpha particle shooting out of here, um, and I've got this, uh, a large distance away, I've got um, a screen with a slit in it. Um, And it means that if a particle passes through there, um, then there can be no momentum in the up-down direction. Because um, so any momentum in the up-down direction would push it off and it would hit the screen and not go through. So if it, any particle that goes through um, that um, slit I know has almost zero momentum in the, uh, the vertical position. Because that's the only way. If it had any momentum it would not go through that slit because the distance I've made very large. But as soon as it goes through that slit, I also have now gained very uh, tight knowledge about where that particle is, because it's gone through that slit. So I seem to have got the trade-off. I know exactly the momentum, and I know exactly um, the position of this thing. But as soon as I know the position, it causes a sudden uncertainty to occur in the momentum. So suddenly this thing gains momentum when it didn't have it um, before. And the uncertainty is is expressed here. So this is actually experimental data where they uh, took uh, particles, they sent them through here, and the the smaller the slit, the more information I have about where that particle is, which means there must be a larger trade-off in the spread of momentum. And you can see this. The the narrower slit is the bottom uh, graph, and then suddenly the momentum is spread all over the place. So where the particle arrives on the screen could be in a wide range of possible values. But as I uh, lose information about position by widening the slit, the momentum comes back in again, and I have more information about the momentum. Now, this is absolutely extraordinary. Um, it, it kind of says that I can't know these two things um, together. But actually, uh, some uh, physicists have started to interpret this and saying, actually, this is a mistake in language, that actually... These particles don't have a momentum and a position. We're so hooked on the way Newton thought about the world, that we just think, yes, uh, you've got this electron, it's got some position, it is somewhere, and it's got some momentum, and you use that to try and make predictions. But physicists now say, no, you shouldn't think of it like that. It's a wrong language. So often some of these uh, kind of unknowns turn out to be just that we aren't able to use language properly. Um, and so people now think that you should say well that electron doesn't have a position an identifiable position until you observe where it is. And so we have this thing now called a quantum wave, which actually describes the probability about where you'll find that electron, should you, or that particle, alpha particle, um, should you want to observe it. So you should think of this thing as not having a position. It's got a sort of probabilistic position spread out over space. The peaks of this um, wave function tell you it's more likely to be there. The troughs tell you um, it's less likely to be there. And, And this is all you can Know and you can't know where that and uh, where that electron is going to be. Uh, more dramatically, you can't know from the wave function when you observe it where it's going to be. It could be in any of these kind of uh, peaks or even in the troughs as well. Um, and so, quantum physics at the moment has at its heart this belief that you will, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, you will not be able to know and predict. And every, You can run the experiments um, over and over again and you'll get different answers with, with the same setup if you could ever um, start the thing in the same way. And actually this is responsible for the uranium emitting particles because um, you know a lot about the momentum of the things inside the nucleus of this uranium which causes an uncertainty in the position such that at some point suddenly the, the particle would say, hey, I seem to be outside the nucleus, not inside it anymore, and it goes flying off. So this is actually, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle helps to understand why this thing is actually emitting uh, particles. Now, there are some people who just believe this can't be how the universe is really behaving. You know, surely this just can't be random about what this is doing. And there must be some mechanism for deciding, okay, it might look probabilistic, the same as the dice. The best uh, things we had uh, to predict the dice is probability. But we know that there are laws of physics controlling what that dice is going to do. And one of those who really believed this just can't be the answer um, was Einstein. And Einstein had this famous quote, quantum mechanics is very impressive, and it certainly is. It's one of the most well-tested theories we have Um, on the scientific books. It with such accuracy that, um, uh, you know, we know we're on to something. But an inner voice tells me that it is not yet the real thing. The theory produces a good deal, but hardly brings us closer to the secret of the old one. I am at all events convinced that he does not play dice. And I think maybe it's the mathematician in me is, is, you know, I also I'm still with Einstein with this, um, that, you know, surely we will come to a point where we have a new theory, a new Einstein that tells us something about the mechanism which is going on, which is controlling this. But we know that the mechanism is going to be really freaky. Um, we know this thing called entanglement, which shows us that any mechanism, you know, there can't be a sort of little internal clock in there, which is just saying, okay, now you're spitting out, now you're not, and whenever you look. And this uh, system, if it is there, we know must be sort of spread across the whole of the universe, which is controlling what this thing is doing. Um, Now, I I mentioned right at the beginning that part of this exploration was about this idea of God being the things that we cannot know. So here is something that apparently we are not able to know, when this thing is going to spit out um, a a bit of uh, uh, its uh, nucleus. Um, So actually, the person I took on my journey to uh, this edge of knowledge is a quantum physicist, but he's also a priest, um, so this is John Polkinghorne. Um, he, he likes to call himself a vegetarian butcher because, you know, how can somebody be a quantum physicist and also a priest at the same time? Um, John Polkinghorne, he has incredibly good credentials. He's trained with Dirac in Cambridge, then went and trained with Feynman. He made great discoveries about quarks. Um, and then about halfway through uh, his kind of scientific life, uh, his, his life he, he then decided that he wanted to be ordained. And so I was very intrigued to talk to him about uh, how does he believe his God works in the world? I think that uh, you know, there are a lot of religious scientists, and I must say, although I you know, said I believe in the arsenal, I am an atheist at heart, and I will declare that. Um, uh, but uh, there are quite a lot of religious scientists, but they divide into two groups, and one uh, are the, the deists and one are the theists. The deists um, say, okay, look, I don't know where this universe came from. I don't know what, you know what started it all, what created it. But once it's been created, there's no... OK, I'll, I'm going to call that God, because I really don't know what it is which kicked this whole thing off. But after that, basically the laws of physics take over, and the whole thing is now something I can talk about. Um, and so they don't think God acts in this world in any sort of meaningful way. But John Polkinghorne is a theist, and he really, really believes, whatever this thing God is, that it acts in the world. And so I was cry- trying to press him, okay, well, how, you're a scientist, how is he acting in the world? Or it, it, how is this thing, it, acting in the world? And, you know, we're thinking of it as the unknowns, um, so that's very interesting. So here we have an unknown, quantum physics. I don't know when this particle is going to emit or, or where I'm going to find a particle. Is that an unknown that can have influence in the world? Well, yes, it can. I mean, whether it has any uh, sort of uh, belief that uh, whether there's any sort of um, uh, meaning to what that action is. But um, so I was intrigued. You know, are you going to say maybe your God is using quantum physics so it can make a decision? You know, um, okay, I'm going to put the electron here and here, and that might actually have a dramatic effect on the universe because chaos says that small changes can have big effects. So I, I thought he was going to say yes, quantum physics, perfect place, my God, to act in the world. Um, but he, he wasn't going to buy that at all. He said, no, 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 no. Because that that really depends. All of these uh, um, observations, all of these uh, uh, decisions about where the electron is going to be depend on an observation. It depends on interacting with the thing. And before that, it's just described by a wave function, a deterministic wave function. Um, And actually, we're all part of a system. So surely the whole, what is an observation anyway? Surely we're all just part of some huge, great, big universal wave function. So he wasn't into using quantum physics as the way that his God was acting in the world. So I said, okay, well, where, how are you doing this? How is it doing it? Um, and he actually went back to chaos theory intriguingly. So his theory is that uh, as humans, we can never know the, the setup of a system in, uh, w- with complete accuracy. There will always be decimal places um, which we don't know about and he believes that that's where a, um, uh, a god could act and tinker with things and change things um, so it could be different as the thing of um, uh, Actually Newton used to think this as well and Leibniz, you know, who was his great competitor over the calculus, just said that's totally ridiculous. Why on earth would he have to tinker? Why couldn't he just set the whole thing up Um, and let it go running in the way that it was meant to at at the beginning. You know, surely God is outside of time, so he knew exactly what was going to happen anyway. Um, So uh, it it was a kind of intriguing journey talking to him about how would you use science to to kind of uh, marry up with your theistic beliefs in a a God acting in the world. But the interesting thing as I went into this journey is that one of the, that reason that a lot of the scientific religious people who are deists who say, okay, I don't know where all of this came from, Let's call that Creator God, and then I'm just going to do science, and and so that unknown, because it is you know we don't know where it all came from. But actually, this Heisenberg uncertainty principle gives us a chance to actually see where this stuff came from. Because um, okay, where did my pot of uranium come from? Um, well, I, I went on Amazon, so uh, I bought it on Amazon. So that's its first source. And actually, it's an amazing kind of um, uh, reviews you can find on Amazon. So. Uh, <laughs> So glad, five stars, so glad I don't have to buy this from the Libyans in the parking lot at the mall anymore. Um, uh, there were some others complaining about the fact that the thing had disappeared, you know, gone down by half, that uh, after, a, um so good you're laughing and I don't have to explain about half-lives. Oh, that's so good. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, but if I trace this back, okay, yeah, probably uh, as I, I talked to somebody on Tuesday about this and he said, he was a, he was a miner and he said, well, it's clear it came from a mine. Yeah, Yeah, okay, yeah, but where did it come from before the mind? And you trace it back, and of course it was made in a star, the most amazing thing, you know, how stars make all of these extraordinary uh, atoms. But what about before that? So we trace it back, where did all of this stuff come from? And it turns out that actually Heisenberg's uncertainty principle um, might be the equation which helps us to get something from nothing. This is one of the big unsolved questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, and actually, uh, if you've got two things, that uh, the things get, measurements get paired up if it sort of matters what order I do it in. So uh, measuring position and momentum, somehow it matters what order I do, and, and they get combined in an uncertainty principle. But there's another uncertainty principle, which combines energy and time. So this is expressed here. So any increase in the amount, uh, if you want to uh, narrow in on a little window of time, the energy within that window becomes more, less certain. So if you've got a region where there's nothing going on there, so you've got no energy, but actually, if you t- decrease the window of time, that means that the energy uncertainty must increase. And so nothing might suddenly become a little bit of something, a little bit of error. Um, and of course, Einstein said energy e equals mc squared. Energy is equivalent to mass. So you've got mass inside here. So as we look in a little window, um, actually we can suddenly get these what we call quantum fluctuations where nothing can suddenly give rise to to matter. So, uh, and this is actually... You you may um, uh, know what uh, Stephen Hawking is famous for. He's famous for predicting that black holes, another place actually where we seem to lose information. If you go past the horizon of a black hole, inside we seem to not be able to know what is going on inside a black hole because information can't get out, Um, one theory has it. But uh, Hawking thinks there may be a way things can get out and it's because of the uncertainty principle at the horizon is that although there's nothing there, every now and again um, uh, this Quantum fluctuation can cause a particle and an antiparticle to appear out of nothing. It's a bit like taking the equation 0 equals 1 minus 1. So you can have nothing and then suddenly get 1 and minus 1. And that antiparticle gets sucked into the black hole, makes it a little bit smaller, and the particle gets emitted out. So we believe in this thing Hawking radiation. We haven't measured it yet, which is why he hasn't got a Nobel Prize yet. But when we do measure it, he will, because this is a way that black holes will actually kind of evaporate and may give back information. We, th- we think that there's a com- something called the information paradox, that black holes may be somewhere where we lose information, but actually this leaking, according to this equation, equation might be a way of us getting back information. Um, but here is an equation which then gives us a way of getting uranium out of nothing. Now you might say, well, yeah, but that isn't really nothing, because you've got space there. Space, just vacuum, isn't nothing. It's a three-dimensional Space and so that is something still. And as a mathematician, I certainly believe that. It is a something. So that isn't really nothing. So where did that something, where did that empty space, where did that empty geometry come from? Uh, But even now, as we push kind of uh, one of the big mysteries is how to equate relativity and quantum physics and the idea of quantum gravity and fluctuations in quantum gravity mean that even space itself might emerge as a fluctuation out of genuinely something which is nothing um uh so so actually it might be that the, our desire for uh some creator uh is well actually the creator is just mathematics mathematics is outside of time it's been there forever will be there forever uh, and and this is a way of just blowing something into those equations and uh, then you get something out of nothing so you know often they say god is a mathematician i would reverse that and say no no mathematics is the god which started all of this um um, so that, that's a couple of the unknowns. Um, uh, so let me just give you a little guide through uh, a couple more, and then I'll show you one of my... Uh, so uh, let's see. We, I, one of the other ones is I, I dig down into my uranium and ask, you know, how far can you go? Can you infinitely divide uranium? Well, if you go inside it, that atom is made out of electrons and quarks. We think that's the bottom layer, but how do we know that? And we'll maybe... You know, we thought atoms with the bottom layer, so, um, so that one's, you know, we might keep on dividing space, um, although we think there's a little quantized space beyond which you can't divide anything. What about going out? Um, is the universe infinite? If it is, could we ever know that? Um, so that's one of my other edges. Um, time, what about time itself? Uh, um, so, uh, you know, we think time had a beginning, uh, the Big Bang, so, but can we talk about what happened before the Big Bang? Now, I was brought up in, in this department on the kind of idea, you can't, you know, it doesn't make sense, because you need time to say before. And so, if there wasn't any time, you can't say before. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's really clever. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and they would always go, yeah, so, so what's north of the North Pole? And you go, yeah, yeah, I get that. There's kind of nothing there. Yeah. But actually, people are beginning to wonder that, no, maybe you can talk about time before the Big Bang. The weird thing is that um, time, uh, you know, is time infinite? Is it going to go on forever? Well, it turns out that it may also run out at the other end as well, which is kind of frightening. So um, t- time may, uh, y- you know, we know we're all finite, but what if the universe is finite? That's pretty frightening. Um, and it's, it turns out that everything's kind of decaying, like these black holes, and all we will be left with is photons and gravitons. And photons and gravitons have no sense of time. And so time will disappear. They won't be able to measure things. But actually, um, this seemed deeply depressing. So I went and talked to Roger Penrose, who is my uh, uh, sort of journeyman on this uh, journey into time. And, and he came, he's come up with a lovely, positive way of viewing this, that uh, then you can rescale the universe because you've got less, uh, lost a sense of time, and that will be the beginning of a new eon and a new Big Bang. So, so it was more hopeful. I, I, I love Roger. It's kind of, and I love Roger as well because he changed his mind. He was one of these people I was brought up on who said... Uh, you can't talk about time before the big bang and now he's changed his mind I love that in a scientist uh, uh, so I'm going to take you uh, actually into a journey um, uh, we've got to, I'm, I'm going, I'll, I'll talk for another uh, until quarter two because I don't, wasn't allowed to start until if that's okay because um, uh, I do want to take you into this edge because this one really pushed me outside my comfort zone um, uh, which is uh, uh, the question about uh, what's happening inside your head it's called the hard problem of consciousness you're all sitting there, um, uh, and you, you're all doing, a, most of you, doing a pretty good impression of a conscious being. I can see some of you sort of, uh, which is fair enough, it's very sunny, and, uh, uh, but you know, I do believe that most of you are, you know, having a conscious experience, uh, but is that conscious experience anything like the conscious experience I'm having? Um, how can I ever know that you really are conscious uh, or, or whether you, maybe you've just sent an avatar down here and you know, uh, th- that, you know, you're doing such a good impression um, and so actually the, uh, the object I took on my journey um, uh, into the hard problem of consciousness um, is in fact, uh, uh, well it's a chatbot app that I downloaded onto my smartphone so I think it's a really interesting question when will my smartphone become conscious and could I ever know that you know, maybe it already is. It's, uh, you know, um, uh, so so, uh, and it's perfectly encapsulated in this kind of Turing question. You know, the the tu- the, uh, the the problem of talking to a machine and determining at what point you say, no, okay, this thing is conscious. Um, so I actually did a little experiment with this. It's called Cleverbot. You can download it for free, and you have a conversation with it, and um, uh, you you sort of try to think whether it, is it somebody on the other end typing these things in or not. So here's a little exercise for you. I did. Um, Uh, I I asked a few questions. I asked questions of Cleverbot, and I also, I did this a bit earlier, um, and I asked some questions of my son. My son's doing physics in Bristol at the moment. Um, He's 20 years old, just to give you some context. Um, So I asked them both questions, and I want you to listen to the questions and and think, you know, can you work out which one is the machine and which one is my son? Um, So we kicked off with, um, uh, do you have a girlfriend? Um, So uh, response A came back, do you want me to have a girlfriend? Uh, Response B came back, Mind your own business, um, okay? So is that the machine? Uh, and the machine, of course, learns. It's an example of machine learning because every conversation you have, you have with it is banked and becomes a conversation it will have with somebody else. Okay, the next one, what is your dream? So response A was, my dream is to become a famous poet. Um, response B, to make lots of money. <laughs> Who was gonna want to do that one? Yes, my son was born in the Thatchride age, just to give you a hint. Um, uh, question three, are you conscious? Now, both of these responses are intriguing because they played on this idea of Descartes, um, uh, his uh, I think, therefore I am. So response A was, if I wasn't, I don't think I... Um, so it was quite convoluted kind of... Uh, but this one is Descartes' response, which says, the only thing I can be certain of, um, and this is, it goes as one of the topics of this book, is, is sort of, you know, how can you know anything? And Descartes said, the only thing I can be sure of is of who I am. So it's the only thing I'm sure of is that I am conscious. So there you are. Which one of those is um, a a machine and which one is my son? And and if we got the machine better, how could we ever know whether it was having a conscious world? Of course, some of you may be synesthetic. Anyone synesthetic here? Uh, Yes, there's a finger going up at the back there. Um, What are you synesthetic with? numbers and colors. My wife is a similarly synesthetic like this and, and so they are having a genuinely different conscious experience because when they see a number, um, it gets colored up. Um, I did a, some wonderful work with a piece of Messiaen. Messiaen was synesthetic with sound and color. Um, and he, So when he listened to music, his music, it was full of color. So we know that people do have genuinely different um, responses, uh, conscious experiences. But, uh, you know, how can you tell? I mean, one of the things I do as a mathematician, very often if I'm trying to understand something, is to understand when something isn't that. It's a very good way to sort of flip the question. So an animal, take an animal. Which of these animals around us, which species, are actually conscious? How many of these animals, if you stick them in front of the mirror, a cat, a dog, a rabbit, um, would know that what they're looking at is themselves? Um, So here's a chimpanzee looking, and, uh, you know, is that... Is he just admiring himself, or doing a few kind of like um, uh, funky moves? Um, uh, now, here's um, a, a test that Gordon Gallup came up with, uh, an animal behaviourist. He said, "Okay, if maybe you put a mark on somebody's forehead, you know, if you look in the mirror and you see something, oh, that's a bit weird. You put your hand up to your forehead." So he was interested. Okay, what animals will have this similar response once you've got them used to what a mirror does? So here's the orangutan who's been marked, um, looking at himself in the mirror. Um, and uh, so what is his response to suddenly seeing, oh, what's that weird thing I've got on my forehead? So, um, so that would be, you know, if you put yourself in front of the mirror and, and, and you didn't know that somebody put some yellow stuff on your forehead, you would immediately go like this. You wouldn't go like this on the mirror. Um, so you can see, you know, he's really pissed off that, um, why has this person put this great big yellow dob in front of it? Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, So it turns out, you know, how many animals pass this test? Very few. Humans do, chimpanzees chimpanzees do, and orangutans do. But gorillas do not. They don't have any response to this. It's very few species that pass this test. Now, it's a very crude test for consciousness, but it is a measure of them realising that that is themselves. Um, So what about children? Uh, um, You know, uh, if you've got a fetus... Um, uh, d- well, a fetus isn't um, conscious but so here's a picture of me as a baby um, I don't think I was conscious didn't have a sense of self then but what point in my evolution you know, as, as I grew older um, did I suddenly start to pass that mirror self recognition test and realise yeah I am a conscious being there must have been a moment when my brain did something uh, which changed and then I had a, a, a sense of consciousness it probably wasn't here But uh, with experiments that we've done, we've seen that actually there's a transitionary moment in the brain around uh, 18 to 24 months. If you put a a 16-month-old in front of the the mirror with a little mark, generally they don't react. They perhaps do something to the mirror. But a 20-month-year-old will immediately do this. So something has happened in the brain that has changed, that has created this consciousness. And actually you can ask the same question um, of the universe. The universe at the Big Bang—was there any consciousness then? Well, so what? At what point did consciousness actually emerge? Um, and actually, Julian James, has a uh, psychologist, he has an interesting theory that that moment when we suddenly started hearing a voice in our heads must have been pretty frightening, and that might have been the spark for something like an idea of a god. Maybe that's what sparked off the thought: there's something else going on inside here. Um, Uh, Okay, so this idea of uh, negatives, um, let me take you to this one. The time when we all lose consciousness every day, or rather every night, is when we sleep. So what ch- happens in the brain every da- night that changes, that we could see maybe what a quality of the brain that makes us conscious. Um, so here's a, um, an awake brain. And um, you do something called TMS. It's transcranial magnetic stimulation, where you switch on some neurons. So, so this is like a little computer gates. Though switching on some of those neurons cause a cascade across the brain and a feedback. The integrated network is actually talking to lots of other bits of the brain, feeding back to the original source of the, the um, stimulation. This is a sleeping brain uh, stimulated in exactly the same area, or with the same TMS um, in deep stage four sleep where you don't have no conscious experience. Everything is very localized. There's no communication going on across the brain. Um, it's as if the tide has come up and all of these net, the network has gone down. Um, so there's now a belief that, um, uh, that we can somehow measure the quality of a network. Um, and uh, there's a guy, Giulio Tononi, who's come up with um, the way a network actually feeds back and forth uh, between each other. The, the nature of those logic gates may have something to do with um, giving a, a network a feeling of what it's like to be itself. Um, and so uh, George, Giulio Tononi has come up with this extraordinary um, equation, a coefficient of consciousness now, you know, I've got to love this. You know, what makes me me is now an equation. So, and the varying quality of this equation as we go through the day and the night or we go into a coma, uh, that this can measure something about your conscious experience. To the extent, interestingly, that you can create a zombie. And uh, You can create a zombie as something that has no conscious experience but behaves exactly as, as, a, as a human would do. Um, So here are two networks, Uh, they have eight neurons, they're wired up in different ways. The input-output behaviour of both of these uh, networks is exactly the same, so if you interacted with it, you would not have any difference between the two. Yet one of them has a lot of feedback in it and has a high level of consciousness with this coefficient, but the one on the right um, has no feedback and it has a zero consciousness according to this equation. And so this will be an example of a zombie network. Um, uh, now of course, uh, um, I'm going to skip Wittgenstein, sorry, um, uh, <laughs> uh, um, Actually, I will tell you about Christoph. Christoph is one of the people who got very interested in uh, this equation. And I talked to him. He's my... uh, I I Skyped him, so I was never quite sure whether actually my conversation with with an avatar or something, uh, whether he was really there. But he got very frustrated with me trying to push him on whether we could ever answer this problem of consciousness. And eventually he said, what sort of research project is it, Marcus, where you throw up your hands and say, forget about it. I can't understand it ever. It's hopeless. That's defeatism. And I think we have a very schizophrenic relationship um, with this idea of the unknown. Um, that uh, you know in one sense you know the unknown is what drives us as scientists you know it the known things are great but what we spend our life trying to understand um, are the things that we don't know so in one way the things we don't know um, are, are, are our lifeblood but the things that will remain forever unknown those are the kind of nemesis of the scientists and so it is a belief I think most of us kind of feel like no you have that arrogance that yeah, we are a species that could know everything. And I think that's really what drives me when I, you know, I throw the dice. Uh, why do I keep on looking? It's my desire that I want to know how this is going to land. A one. Thank you.